Welcome to the Story Scribe Podcast, the place in which we talk about stories, whether they are in books, on screen, over a speaker, or around a table. I'm your host, Blake Oliver. Today we're going to talk about speculative fiction as I'm going to uh, read the intro to my uh, thesis about speculative fiction and migration. And also, uh, before that, I would like to talk about race and D&D again with Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. But first, a brief sponsor break. So, like I said, we are going to start with Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. So in Chapter 1, at the very beginning, it says customizing your origin. And really what it seems to mean is customizing your race or sub-race. And in the past, I had talked about being very nervous about them releasing a supplement, which is going to cost money, and that's going to be the focus of the supplement. But I'm actually happy to say that Tasha's Cauldron of Everything is a fantastic supplement for your D&D table. Uh, I, I have very little in the way of notes that I, of things that I would like to do. Um, the majority of it is that if you are customizing your origin, even on D&D Beyond, uh, you can change your ability score increases, your languages, and your proficiencies. So what's important to me is that, uh, you know, you can say that a dwarf has a constitution increase of two, uh, and then, you know, if you're a, a mountain dwarf, uh, if I remember right, you have a strength increase of two as well. Uh, or if you're a hill dwarf, it's a wisdom increase of one. So... Instead of saying that that is all dwarves, you can say that you can swap out your ability scores to have a plus two and a plus one ability score. Now, what I would say is I would would probably choose to uh, move that around a little bit. So right now I'm even working on a supplement uh, myself in for Eberron, where... Uh, if you are from a certain nation, that can affect your ability store, score stat. So as a DM, knowing the cultures of the world, I might say, well, if you're going to switch out, switch out that stat, you should do this. Uh, and I, I think that is perfectly reasonable for a DM to do, uh, to work with their players to figure out what they're good at and why. And then, of course, languages is very easy to change because... You know, of course, if you are an elf, but you were never raised around elves, you were raised around giants, you're not going to know elvish, you're going to know giants. So I think that that one is a really easy fix uh, that I think that they did really well on. And then lastly, they have the proficiency changes so that not all elves and not all dwarves are proficient with certain weapons. Uh, So more or less, they've got a table where you can talk about the different proficiency swaps that you can do. If it's a skill that you'd be trained in, such as acrobatics, you can trade any skill for one other skill. If it's an armor proficiency, you can change that armor proficiency for a simple or martial weapon or tool. Uh, If you are proficient with a simple weapon, you can change that for any simple weapon or tool. 
Uh, or if you want to change out a martial weapon, you can change that for a simple or a martial weapon or tool. So more or less for each item that they're like, oh, instead of for elven training, you're not proficient with longbows, you can say you're actually proficient with hand axes. Uh, and, and that's what you choose to be proficient with or with thieves tools, depending on your background. Uh, and then, of course, you have that a, a tool can actually be traded for either another tool or a simple weapon. Um, and, and something to note, the only one that I don't see getting a, a different trade is the armor proficiency, which in order to keep uh, the balance, you've got to have uh, the, the armor proficiency more or less as a, a deep training so you don't just get that from your background, which I think really that, that might only affect dwarves if I remember right. Uh, but you can, or or your class, or your race rather, but you can still get that from your background and your class. Um, for your custom lineage, uh, it says instead of choosing one of the game's races for your character at first level, you can use the following traits to represent your character's lineage, giving you full control over how your character's origin shaped them. So creature type, you are a humanoid. You determine your appearance and whether you resemble any of your kin. So more or less choose if you look like any of the other races or not. Uh, and if you don't, have an example. Um, size, you need to be small or medium, your choice, uh, which is standard. Uh, the base walking speed is 30, which I think is very interesting because a small uh, character is usually base walking speed of 25. Uh, one ability score of your choice is plus two. Um, if you do the ability score increase, uh, feet, you can just choose one feet that you qualify for, and then you can gain one of the following options of your choice. You can gain dark vision with a range of 60 feet or proficiency of one skill of your choice, and you can speak, read, and write common and one other language that you and your DM agree on as important for your character. So uh, those are more or less the general ideas around uh, the, the racial changes that you can make. I think that they're, they're simple enough, they're open-ended enough that they can fit with any story. Uh, and, and it's really something I, I think that they did a great job at. Uh, it's not a, a super big change like I thought they might. Uh, and of course, one of the things that I like in particular is their note on personality. The description of a race might suggest various things about the behavior and personality of that people's archetypal adventurers. You may ignore those suggestions, whether they're about alignment, moods, interests, or any other personality trait. Your character's personality and behavior are entirely yours to determine. And I think that that's the thing that most people have really been hung up on i don't think most people have been as hung up on the uh the ability score changes and all of that as much and i think a good dm probably already came up with some of those fixes or had some ideas in mind like i said i tied that to nationality so if you uh, are a, a high elf from brayland you might choose or breland uh you might choose to instead of getting uh, a plus two to your intelligence, you get a plus one to intelligence, but now you get a plus two to dexterity, let's say. Uh, so I think that is the update on that. 
and I am actually pretty pleased with it. Uh, I'm not getting any revenue from Tasha's Cauldron of Everything or D&D Beyond. Uh, if you want to sponsor me, D&D Beyond, or Tasha's Cauldron of Everything or Wizards of the Coast, I'm more than happy to let that happen. Just waiting here by my phone. All right. Well, so now we will go ahead and move on to talk about speculative fiction after this brief break. So hopefully you've come back and you are willing to listen to the introduction to my thesis on speculative fiction. The term speculative fiction is relatively new. As such, it is important to begin with this or this dissertation by defining speculative fiction, arguably the most important term that will be used throughout the following chapters. In term of genre, it is purposefully broad using R.B. Gill's definition of speculative fiction as works presenting modes of being that contrast with their audience's understanding of ordinary reality. This definition includes science fiction, fantasy, and paranormal literature of all kinds. Of paramount importance to this mode of being is that it includes explorations of human imagination and values. The epistemological value of work of speculative fiction is in the distance from reality provided, removing from some biases toward or against some people's groups and decisions while still being engaging in context unlike philosophical thought experiments. The broad definition of speculative fiction used within this dissertation is to ensure that imaginative literary works appearing different from each other by superficial means are included as they explore topics important to the human experience using similar methods. A common trope in speculative fiction is the character or character group of the other or the outsider, which lives in a different land to begin with, but moves to another land. As is often the case, this migration is the source of perceived problems, such as in George R.R. R. Martin's A Game of Thrones with people across the northern border depicted only as barbaric raiders, ignoring their poverty and impending supernatural doom, or Neil Gaiman's American Gods, where the expectation of immigrants to assimilate is represented by war between gods from their former nations and new gods of secular capitalism, causing a struggle of national and personal identity, or Brian K. Vaughn's saga, in which an interracial couple is forced to flee an intergalactic war as asylum seekers. Asylum seekers, I'm sorry. The issues around migration explored in each of these texts depicts realistic aspects of the workings of culture and the plight of the other as they immigrate. As the culture within the novels are examined and challenged, so is the American cultural context they were written in. There has been considerable academic work in terms of defining fantasy, science fiction, and other kinds of paranormal literature, including horror, as separate literary genres. This work is by no means diminished by cohesion in speculative fiction. According to Brian Atterbury, whose analysis of fantasy is invaluable to the study of speculative fiction, there were historically only two literary genres, history, things which were true, and romance, things which were not. But once the realistic novel was invented, it claimed kinship to history and denied its ties to romance. Notation of the similarities between what has been termed fantasy and science fiction recognizes a historical origin and enhances the understanding of the texts 
under speculative fiction through the common methods of world building due to their interrelation. Often the question of whether a text is a work of science fiction or fantasy relies on two questions. The first of these is, does the work appear to take place in the past or the future? While the second, arguably more important to the definition is, is the central prop problem magical or technological? These questions are by no means the only way to define science fiction and fantasy, but they do provide a quick heuristic for categorizing works. While science fiction novels all, almost always involve technology and fantasy novels almost always involve some sort of magic, the problems discussed and the methods used to discuss them are often the same. Part of the analysis in the following chapters seek to show that the similarities between science fiction and fantasy make them related genres. Gill, in an attempt to reconcile genre and speculative fiction, labels the terms fantasy, science fiction, and others as micro-subjects with superficial differences. While much of Gill's theory on speculative fiction is useful, some terminology is not. In this dissertation, fantasy and science fiction will still be termed as genres under speculative fiction, which will be termed as a supergenre. In addition to this, more specific generic terms, such as science fiction's space opera, will be called subgenre. These definitions are to maintain common terminology and a scope of broadest to most specific in organizing genre, similar to how biologists organize species. The relation of these imaginative works necessitates the structure of speculative fiction as a supergenre to facilitate an understanding of commonality through the use of its broad generic structure. So I wrote all of that, and I'm going to take a pause there uh, just to bring up the fact that uh, there's a lot in a dissertation that you have to do where you are setting up terminology and defining your meanings and, and that sort of thing. Uh, and really, one of the big points that I'm making across this is that speculative fiction, whether it's science fiction or fantasy, are valuable, that there is an intrinsic aspect of humanity and problem solving that you cannot solve merely with the the philosophical questions that you might be posed if you've ever been in an ethics class you might have heard like of the trolley scenario or other similar scenarios where there are you know moral questions about what could be done uh, but there is more to find out about humanity and it can be explored more thoroughly in speculative fiction so, uh, often speculative fiction texts are dismissed, ignoring the insights they have to offer. Speculative fictions, like any other fiction, which may be considered literary for the insights it holds, is created within the context of culture. According to Rosemary Jackson in her analysis of literary fiction, fantasy as a whole, a literary fantasy is produced within and determined by its social context. Though it might struggle against the limits of this context, often being articulated upon that very struggle, it cannot be understood in isolation from it. The struggles within the literary works of speculative fiction, no matter how fantastical, are predicated on the struggles within the real-world context they are written in. Jackson argues that works of speculative fiction not only exist within a social context, 
but that they seek to subvert culture. Recognition of the insights of literary speculative fiction contradicts the dismissals of the genre. Much of genre fiction is considered popular fiction, a term which appears to be used by scholars as a slur against such works. However, David Glover and Scott McCracken define popular fiction as those books that everyone reads, usually imagined as a league table of bestsellers whose aggregate figures dramatically illustrate an impressive, impressive ability to reach across wide social and cultural divisions with remarkable commercial success. One of the authors in their anthology of critical works is Roger Luckhurst. Luckhurst began his essay with the assertion that popular literature is indicated from all sides, including such authors and theorists as Evelyn Wow, Richard Hogart, Theodore Adorno, and Max Horkheimer. Their arguments conclude that the literature and popular culture debases appropriate public representations and discourse and is a destruction of the critical capacities of serious art. Luckhurst argues that not only is this not true, but that popular fiction can be thought of as a significant arena for cultural commentary. Each of the following texts to be discussed are best-selling, award-winning works. Two of the three have been turned into, into television shows due to their popularity. It is popularity, wide-reaching fame, which causes the narratives of subversion within each text to reach a large audience. As readers engage with each text, they examine the created culture and therefore question their own. And that, again, I'll keep coming back to this, is I've, I've heard a lot of people dismiss speculative fiction out of hand. Uh, I have the misfortune of having a friend of a friend who always uh, talks poorly about fantasy, which I take deeply uh, as, as an affront. Uh, but the idea that just because fantasy and sci-fi are popular works, that they are imaginative works, that they can't illustrate something about the culture is completely inaccurate uh, and as now being increasingly studied. And I'm glad that I get the chance to be a part of that. But how can a work resist the culture it is produced in, as Jackson attests? Gloria Anzaldúa, a Chicanan author who analyzes being a part of both Mexican and American cultures in her work Borderlands, La Frontera, says that culture forms our beliefs. We perceive the version of reality that it communicates. Dominant paradigms, predefined concepts that exist as unquestionable, unchallengeable, are transmitted to us through culture. Culture is made by those in power. These dominant paradigms are expressed in stories through meta-narratives, overarching stories answering questions a culture uses to define itself. Examples of these meta-narratives include the Marxist meta-narratives of who owns and the liberal meta-narrative of who has rights. According to Anzaldúa's statement, people in power wanting to stay in power and amass more of what makes them powerful, answer these questions in ways which are beneficial to their goals. Those in power, in theory, can finance popular culture and the fictions within it to spread messages which perpetuate their power. If speculative fiction is fluff, then it can do little work than be used by those in power to placate those without. However, this does not appear to be the case. 
Many works of speculative fiction create worlds with questionable authority to work as subversive narratives of power. Ursula K. Le Guin, speculative fiction author, recognizes a distrust which stems from the subversive messages of speculative fiction. In wondering why Americans are afraid of dragons, I began to realize that a great many Americans are not only anti-fantasy, but altogether anti-fiction. We tend, as people, to look upon all works of the imagination either as suspect or as contemptible. It is possible that because these works of imagination contain counter-narratives that they are treated with suspicion. The differences between the created world within a work of speculative fiction create a dialogue with the real world, most notable in the values of the created culture. The alternative reality created by speculative fiction is the outward manifestation of implicit values. This foundational structure could be called its worldview, a term hard to pin down but helpful nonetheless. A worldview is a value narrative or underlying account of actions that explains and validates them. It is a paradigm of values according to which events are judged according to Gill. The power of the speculative in this dialogue between the worldview of text and the meta-narratives of our reality. This dialogue is what elevates certain speculative fictions from being fluff to literary as in any other genre fiction. The reader of literary speculative fictions sees where the worldview is in agreement with the meta-narratives of culture and where it is in conflict. This dialogue is asserted using four methods common to speculative fiction, which will be used to analyze the text in the following chapters. The first of these methods, often the first available to the reader of fantasy through a map, is a different setting. Each created world has a sense of time and place different from the reality of the reader. A map allows the reader to know before reading any of the text itself that the world they are about to enter is separate from the world they are used to. The change in setting, whether there is a map or not, is the first step for the reader in transportation, defined here as taking the reader into a believable world they can emotionally invest in. These settings can act as meditation or mediations for the people who live there. Additionally, there is a different sense of history. While there is not always a timeline of events dedicating or dictating the new history, the best works of literary speculative fiction have a sense of a past, both recent and historical. In the appendix of Game of Thrones, each of the great houses is outlined with a brief house history and the members of that household. This attempts to cross the barrier into realism as another source of evidence that the world the reader has been transported into could be real, on its own terms. The more history-like a novel seemed, the more highly it was regarded, according to Atterbury. The histories within fantasy, in particular, often use the myths of the culture they are written in to fill their own histories, creating the sense that the created world is related to the real world. Nearly all fantasy has made such raids on the recorded inventory of traditional narratives. This has traditionally caused speculative fiction to draw primarily from Scandinavia and Western Europe, a fact which is challenged in American gods, which has deities of other origins. These changes in settings can, according to the work of Jonathan DeSchmidt 
and Helinda Cruz in the epistemic, ep, epistemic value of speculative fiction, sorry, uh, transport the reader into the new world and allows for a richer exploration of philosophical positions than is possible through ordinary philosophical thought experiments. Where the usual thought experiments of analytic philosophy lack context and emotional investment, speculative fiction creates relatable characters living in a world where different possibilities and ideals exist. This transportation allows the reader to experience these changes with a distance from reality, providing a distance from biases for or against real people groups and the ability to see outcomes which they may not have another means of experiencing. The second method of uh, in speculative fiction is the representation of culture within the text. This culture, existing in a different setting, has a different worldview from reality's meta-narrative. As Jackson suggests, presenting that which cannot be but is, fantasy exposes a culture's definitions of that which can be. It traces the limits of its epistemological, epistemological sorry, and ontological frame. Exploring an invented worldview points out the benefits and negatives of the created culture and therefore explores the real world culture through assessing similarities and differences. If a speculative world hates immigrants so much that it builds a wall or the wall to keep them out or seeks to eliminate differences to the point of creating new modern deities which eliminate the ancient inherited ones or hates another race to the point of genocide, the world will see the problems inherent in the created culture and examine the problems of their own. The created culture leads to the third method, evil as defined by culture. Jackson recognizes relativity in culture's definition of evil when she says, the concept of evil, which is usually attached to the other, is relative, transforming what shifts or with shifts in cultural fears and values. Any social structure tends to exclude and as evil anything radically different from itself or which threatens it. Perceived difference being labeled as evil is present in each of the following speculative works, and I might add, in real life. Necessarily, in each of the chosen texts is the fourth method, the challenge. The character, either a protagonist or someone closely connected, represents a counter-argument to the defined evil. The free folk of a Game of Thrones are, are called wildlings and are depicted as violent, greedy raiders who are a threat to the culture of the Seven Kingdoms. Rhetoric challenged by Osha, the free folk woman who integrates with society after being captured, fleeing the dangers beyond the wall. The old gods of American gods are being eliminated or rebranded by the new gods due to a scarcity of worship symbolic of the expectation for immigrants to assimilate and lose their old identity for an American identity. Problematic as the character of Shadow struggles to understand what his or America's identity is. An intergalactic war is fought in Saga by the technological wings and the magical horns out of deep racial hatred, a racism undermined by the love of an interracial couple and their child. This last method is the most important for assessment due to its transformative power for the reader. Fantasy in this sense links desire and imagination, utopia and history, but with a more pronounced edge intended to redeem 
and perhaps even create a new moral and social order, according to Saldivar. Through the viewpoint of the other who has been declared evil, the reader examines the argument from the position of the outsider. The others in the following texts are all in a process of migration, offering a way of engaging with the ongoing discussion of migration in the U.S., Publishing his extensive research on the U.S.-Mexico border in 2013, Seth M. Holmes explains danger and death along the border are not, as commonly portrayed in popular and public health media, results of individual decisions, but often the result of systemic issues. These three novels reflect the existence of systemic problems toward migrants, which considers them as other to the culture within the texts. Worldviews mirroring meta-narratives of U.S. culture which label migrants and refugees as outsiders deserving of terrible fates. This dissertation seeks to examine U.S. speculative fiction as a discourse on migration, particularly why migration may be viewed as negative. The following chapters analyze popular genre works of speculative fiction from different subgenres published within the last 30 years for elements of culture, which define the migrating other as evil and the way in which the work subverts that message. So that's a that's more or less what we're going to be listening to, uh, hopefully, over the next couple of episodes. Uh, the the four methods of talking about speculative fiction are taken from various resources, and I think the most valuable way of discussing speculative fiction, and arguably a lot of fictions, um, what I've discovered in my research is that speculative fiction the is analyzed in a way that most other fictions are analyzed and uh, have as much or to me more value than than other fictions but uh, let me know what you think uh, hopefully there are some comments please leave me uh, a like subscribe and please uh, if you like what you've heard today share this podcast out so that uh, I can keep doing what I'm doing. And I enjoy doing this. Uh, hopefully you have some ideas about speculative fiction. Hopefully you like stories in general. Otherwise, I don't know why you would be here. Uh, but thank you for listening. And uh, I will listen to you all next time. Man, I've got to get better at endings. I've got the opening down, I think. But I've got to get better at the endings. You won't listen to me. I won't listen to you. Hopefully you'll listen to me. Uh, When I get off the cuff like that at my endings, I've not got that down yet. I need to work on that. Bye.